Okay, okay. so welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we'd just love to hear a little bit about you and what brought you to PELF and, mm -hmm. and just kind of who you are, what your position is and that kind of stuff. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here for this interview today. My name is Renata Ray Mayer and I'm originally from Cape Town in South Africa. So I'm an immigrant in Portland. Um, the, the first time I came to Portland, I just fell in love with the city. It just seemed like such a queer, friendly, creative place where you really could just love your best life and be anything you wanted to be. And actually, a few months after that, um, I met my now husband in China. And guess where he's from? Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and, you know, when we started dating, we did this whole meet the folks tour. So he came home with me and then I came home with him. It was in 2016 during the election season. and It was terrible. I had the worst time in Portland, Oregon. I felt super out of place everywhere when people stared at me. Um, I couldn't wait to leave and I couldn't believe that this was the same city that I'd fallen in love with. And it got so bad that my mental health started being affected. I went to see a doctor at an immigrant healthcare center and I said, doctor, I feel invisible and hypervisible at the same time. And you know what he said? He said, what you're feeling is very normal for a black woman. And I thought if this is normal, then I don't want to be a part of the city. And I actually ended up leaving Portland for Vietnam. And I knew that if I ever came back to live in Portland, I wanted to work to make sure that anyone that looks like me feels more connected, they feel more seen and they feel more valued. I knew that that was the kind of work that I wanted to do. Fast forward a few years, we got married and we moved to Portland about a year and a half ago. Um, I did a leadership program um, at PELF, the Portland African American Leadership Forum, which is how I got introduced to the work that they do. After the leadership program, I didn't want to leave. And so I ended up getting a job with PELF um, during a very exciting time, actually. The new ED, Joy Elise Davis, um, you know, is really taking the organization in an exciting new direction. Um, you know, we've been around for more than a decade, right? but it's only been since the past three or four years that we sort of have new energy injected into the organization. But one of the most exciting things is we've adopted this black queer feminist lens to our work, which we um, inspired by BYP 100, um, which just says that we, we have to center those most marginalized within the black community. That's our starting point, right? And it's a very inclusive politic. And when you know, when we talk about lenses, we talk about the way that you view something. And that's the way that we view our work. We know that our, our starting point has to be centering those most marginalized. And we know that if we're not, if we're not all free, then who's really free, right? Mm. Um, so that's a bit about we. <laughs> okay, so with that, uh, so, what are the things that PELF is really focusing on? And we know that um, the We Count Oregon campaign and, and working with the census is, is um, definitely one of your focuses, but what are some of the other things that are coming to the table and, and how is that, um, well, not impacting, but how is that sort of coinciding with the work you're doing with the We Count? Yeah, so I am the Census Equity Manager at PELF. Um, and we also have a sister entity, which is the PELF Action Fund. And to get technical, we have a 501c3, which is where I'm working. And then we also have a 501c4, right? So PELF, the Portland African American Leadership Forum, is where we do leadership development, like I was talking about. This is where we engage with our community through organizing, direct action, and political education. The 501c4 is PELF Action Fund, and this is where we engage in political action, which includes lobbying, advocacy, and electoral work. So we are doing so much organizing right now because, you know, organizing essentially is just creating community. And, and that's the work that we've always been doing. You know, we strive to create a community where all people of African descent feel connected and where they are living in a city where they can thrive. 
so we working on our black possibility survey which is very exciting um, this survey helps us build black organizing power in oregon um, it helps us map out where black people live so that we can create tribes where folks can get connected with like-minded folks um, we are also working on a child care campaign which is very exciting um, we're working on uh, accessible high quality universal child care campaign and then also we're moving a lot of our work to a digital space so we really are just you know pivoting and adjusting to the new normal um, but of course my big project is the census that's that's where it's happening for me right now um, the we count campaign is is a statewide campaign and it's made up out of about 12 or 13 um, community organizations. Mm -hmm. All of these organizations are already doing work in hard to count communities. And these hard to count communities include black people, indigenous people, people of color, immigrants, refugees, renters, rural folks, and children under five. These are the communities that are really at risk of being undercounted in the census for various reasons. But if you fall in this hard to count category, you need extra in-person engagement before you take the census. So before you take the census, you'd need someone to talk to you about the census, or you'd need someone to explain why it's so important. And so this is the work that the campaign is doing. Um, so it's a statewide community-led effort to ensure that the hard to count communities understand and take the census. Of course, understanding the census is one thing, but what we really want is for everyone to take the census because the census is for everyone. And the census work ties into what we do at Pulse because, you know, we, like I mentioned, we envision a world where people of African descent enjoy the rights, resources, and recognition to be a thriving, resilient, and connected community. So essentially, we envision a world where people of African descent count where they matter and where they are all accounted for, right? So during our field campaign, which is where we are phone banking and calling people about the census, our goal is to contact 5,000 black folks about the census. Of course, because of the current global pandemic, all work has now moved online. So now I'm managing my team online and they are rapidly meeting their field goal. They're doing an amazing job because this work is really urgent. Black people are historically undercounted and we need to disrupt that pattern in Oregon because the census is about power, it's about money and it's about representation, right? And I'm sure we'll dive into this a bit more, but the number of people counted directly correlates to the amount of funding that we get for programs. And all Oregonians rely on these programs, whether you think you do or not. I like to think of the census in terms of your quality of life. The census impacts your quality of life. And I'm sure most of us can, can care about that, right? And make a connection with that. Right. Um, but also, you know, the 2020 census could mean another seat in Congress for Oregon, which is an opportunity for our voices to be heard. So are you, uh, how's the, um, are you operating out of the PELF office off of Williams now? Or are you all at home or? Yeah. How are you, I see, I'm asking the question that I don't want you to. Okay, uh, no, we can wait, we can wait. No, actually, you know what? He doesn't need to be on the call for that question. So in light of this pandemic, how are you guys dealing with the, um, you know, being, uh, how, how is the community accessing your center? Is it closed? Are they coming in like and keeping social distancing? Are they using the facilities to fill out their census? Yeah, um, we're all working from home. So um, we, not, we don't provide any um, direct services. So luckily we haven't had to redirect folks. Um, we are a really small team and luckily, you know, before all of this happened, we were all pretty well versed on digital systems. So we all been, we've, we've all been using that. Um, I had to hire my team of 12 organizers online. Um, I'm managing them via Zoom. So we, you know, we just had to find ways to adjust to the new normal. Um, 
a lot of our programming, we are moving online. So we are so ready for this digital space. We'll be hosting a lot of events and meetups um, on this cool digital platform called Hopin. That's really safe and secure. Um, so we'll be having social, social gatherings, happy hours, political education. So yeah, the, the, the work is still continuing and we're still organizing and we still, you know, just trying to make sure that our communities stay connected. So what if, have you guys been getting feedback from people? Cause obviously the, the mailers already went out and mm -hmm. so, and it's, it's not complicated, is it? It's not really a bunch of complicated questions. Um, yeah, not at all. Um, the cool thing about the 2020 census is you can fill it out online. That's big. This is the first time ever that you're able to do that. And I took it online. It took me eight minutes and it only has nine basic questions. Right. It's so basic. The census will never ask you your social security number. The census will never ask you for money. So it will never ask you for any credit card information. And the census will never ask you about your um, citizenship status. It's so basic. It's your name, your last name, your address, your sex. Um, right How many now, people in the household? Yeah. Uh, right now, it's only male and female, which we can organize for more inclusive questions. Mm. Those are the options we have right now. Um, how many people are living in the house? Um, and then, of course, your date of birth. Uh, oh, so, interesting about the gender-specific questions, too, because uh, we do a, um, uh, a community event, and it's a timed event, the MLK Dream Run. But the, we face the same thing there that, you know, we have to like, it's USATF guidelines, right? Yeah. And, and I know they're wrestling with that too, because at the, at the moment, it's kind of like, it's either male or female, and that's the, the category you're running in, right? You know, we have age categories, but it's really only male or female. And I wonder why, because the census seems like, that's relevant data if it's asking ethnicity you know what i mean why it's not asking um i guess you know um this kind you know um the identity in terms of uh sexuality is that yeah i mean it's, it's frustrating it really is frustrating it really feels like the census is excluding so many people you know by refusing to include more markets for the way that you want to identify right but the good news is that this year is the first year that you can indicate that you are in a same-sex relationship. This year, we also have more markers for race and ethnicity. So we are making progress. And, you know, also, you know, we're telling folks who, do, who don't identify as male or female, we're telling folks who, you know, identify anywhere on the spectrum. So out the the one that you want to fill out for now. Um, the census only happens once every 10 years. We could start organizing so that they have more markers for the way people want to identify. But this is what we've got this year. And, wow. you know, we do want to make sure we get, we get this, this federal dollars to our communities. And are you finding that people are refusing to take the um, census because of that reason? Um, no, we're not really finding that that's the reason. Um, okay, thank you, Steve. Bye, Stephen. Uh, yeah, because I, I had one particular case of, of knowing somebody who did not want to take it because they weren't acknowledged in yeah. that way. So, and then being able to really talk to them about, you know, the representation that they could get, um, you know, it just becomes a bit of a, a, a tug of war in terms of I'm following the rules, but I'm trying to break the rules that don't, you know, suit me. So why would I follow rules that don't suit me? No, that that's so valid. And that's so true. You know, we, the one thing that we don't want to do is make people feel like what they're saying is not valid, right? When it, we, you know, when it comes to the black community, there's a lot of uh, mistrust of the government and there's a lot of fear that's so valid, right? There's a lot of um, feelings around, you know, why does this even matter to me? So we want to make space for that, you know, engage with people when they say that. Um, 
but then we do want to like make that connection to make them understand that yes you know the census is imperfect yes we have made so many strides i mean there was a time where black people were not fully counted as human so we have made many many strides and yes we do have a long way to go but in 2020 this is what we have right now and it's so critical that we get counted, you know? There are a lot of people out there working to make sure that we don't get counted. And, you know, if, if, that, if, if that motivates you to take the census, then you should take the census. <laughs> so, and it's really a part, um, so, you know, what I've noticed about self or PELF is that it is like a political kind of focus group. So it's really trying to get people to exercise their civic empowerment a little bit more. So are you finding that um, black people in our community are, are getting more civically involved or taking their civic duties a little bit more seriously these days? Or are you finding the engagement is um, energized in any way? Because, you know, we came off the Black Lives Matter movement, right, from 2015, 16, probably at the time when you were here when it, it just felt so like extra, right, because there were all the protestings going on. And, and as you said, you know, you were black, so you felt both visible and hyper, I mean, invisible and hyper visible at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seemed like people were really, um, you know, getting geared up to uh, participate in that way. And mm -hmm it may have fallen off a little. Is it ticking back up, do you think? I'm not sure, actually. Um, I don't have any data around that, and I, and I haven't really been working on how to say um, we haven't seen any of that. Um, but I'm pretty sure my ED could, could, could answer that if you all want to set up an interview for that. Okay, John, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi, John. <laughs> Good to see I'm you. Ray. <laughs> okay. Right? Uh, yeah, I couldn't see. Yeah, now you can tell I done aged myself. Now you can see how young you is. I, now I got to put on my glasses now. That's <laughs> 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 the first thing to go. <laughs> so, I'm sorry for being so late. I just meeting after meeting, but um, I'm glad that they got an opportunity to say hi to you and uh, get a sense of what's going on. So, Fawn, where are you guys at in, in the interview? How's things going? Right. So we talked a little bit about, you know, what other some other things that PALF is focusing on and um, Ray in particular is assigned to the um, census campaign. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, her leader, her uh, director was Joy. And she was talking about some of, you know, they were going strong to the femme women kind of movement and doing a lot of engagement around that community because it's a hard to reach community. And I was kind of waiting for you to join us to ask this question, John, because I know that, um, you know, sort of the black male initiatives and achievements and the condition of the black man is a very important um, subject for you, right? It's just something you have deep care about. And I'm wondering about, you know, some of the engagement around the census because, what? Can you hear me? I care about all my black people. I just, like I said before, it's just that, black males seem to be the most marginalized today, you know, amongst us. So, and I keep seeing that go, go a little bit more um, uh, left all the time. Okay, meaning that since we got off, or is that something you're asking me to, you know, to elaborate on, or is that just something you just threw out there to get my Well, book? you know, I want to keep <laughs> it also about the work of the census and the hard to count, but when I look at I, I, what we, I, I've been re waiting for you to really dig in with Ray about is like, you know, what is really constituting hard to count people in the black community? What are you seeing? Who are the hard to count um, demographics there that you guys are focusing on? Because is PELF specifically focusing on the black community? Yes. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, um, we are part of the coalition for the hard to count um, campaign. And each of these um, community organizations work in a specific community. And so PALF has we at the table to um, specifically make sure that black people get counted in Oregon. That's, that's neat, that's a, that's a great thing, welcome. I've been making sure that black people were counted for the last 60 years. Yeah. 
Amazing. <laughs> New people are showing up to do the work, you know? Um, but, you know, Fawn, what constitutes hard to reach demographics? And, uh, you know, to me, it's funny, though, because what constituted is, is when black folks refuse to open the door for white people. That's what's hard to reach demographics, you know. In, in my book, you know, it's, it, where, where I grew up at in the project was the only people that came into the project was neither social workers or the police that was white. You know, so since it's counted, it was hard. I mean, what you mean is it's hard to get somebody in there to count them, <laughs> you know, because they, they're not necessarily, they didn't send one of ourselves. They, and then the people who they hired usually in there to go in there and do the count just took the money and just didn't even do the count, you know, because of some other stuff, you know. So, but, uh, so there, there was a number of different things. But to me, hard to reach communities are rooted in the fact that. Uh, status quo or those people who are um, in the dominant demographic has a difficulty facing the reality of the condition of those people. That's what makes it hard for them to reach because they're hard. It's, they don't want to go in there and reach them because it's too reflective of what the condition that they have imposed upon them. So they're not necessarily receptive to them coming in and they're not receptive to going in. So they've been hiring people like me for years to go reach my people because they just don't want to go over the fence because they have some of the fears and concerns that they have set up for themselves. So, so that's part of it. And the other part of it is, is, you know, the whole systemic reality of racism in this country. I mean, you rather it's housing, rather it's uh, communities, rather it's health, rather it's education, rather it's institutions. It, it's all relative. It's all the same stuff. The, the reality of it is, is we've been made invisible. So it's hard for us to be found. So true, and the, the census is all about visibility, right? We, we all know what the, the narrative of Oregon is, um, that they are just white people that live here, right? But we know that that's not true. Oregon might have been founded as this white utopian state, but black and brown communities have been living and thriving here and contributing to the economy for decades. Oh, yeah. And the census yeah. is, is a way for us to change that narrative about what the state of Oregon looks like, because that's what some of the census data is used for, right? right. Is to say who loves you and, and what, is, what do their conditions look like? Right, but here's where a little bit of my history in, in terms of how long I've been alive and, and how long, you know, my family, I can trace my family back. In fact, I just took my daughter back to the plantation we walked off of. And today we own half of it you know, in Georgia. Um, this whole reality of moving the plight from black people from Georgia to the North, which was New Jersey and New York, right? So that's why I spent my time going to school, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you know, when we think about, I, I remember when I came to this state, I came to this state and I wanted to bring a certification process for the drug and alcohol uh, licensing and certification in this state, in the state of Washington. And um, it was mental health, it was my background. And so I was looking at doing, since I come from this dysfunctional reality, father was an alcoholic, my mama was a mad addict. Um, you know, one thing led to the next. Every, I had seven sisters and brothers and every one of us had that X factor, you know, that, and not one of us escaped this ism or this, this issue around addiction and disease and all of that. So. When I got here, but then after having looking to set up culturally specific practices, a couple of couple of years go by, and within the late '80s, you know, I get a phone call from one of the consortium members coming to sell me on an idea about diversity. And at that time, I was sitting, I was the vice president of the NAACP in, in Marion County, and um, they come to me and they said to me. His name is Jim Seymour, and it's so ironic because a couple of years back, I got an opportunity to find him in front of Catholic Community Services and said to him, you sold me a lie. You sold me a lie on diversity. When they sold me diversity, they said to me very clearly as we were walking, it was a planned agenda by white America because mm -hmm. we had already known that affirmative action was under attack already. But when he sat me down, he was clear about, and we were walking around, actually he didn't sit me, we were walking around the park, is that if we simply adopted some of these other fights or entities onto the platform, the issues of women, 
the issues of other cultures, handicaps, LBGTQ community. If you allowed all that on the platform, when I said why, he said that it would accelerate the platform. It would get you to your destination quicker. And I thought about it for a second and I go, hmm, well, it took us this long to get enough nerve to get culturally specific about our agendas. But now, if you're saying that this would help us a little bit, sure, I'm begrudgingly, I'll go along with it. Well, it was ironic because along the same time of a 20-year investment in that, the State of Black Oregon was published. And what we had to do as a, as a, as a, as a unit of Black clinicians, we collated that data. And we found that diversity did not accelerate us in any word of way imagined on that by allowing others in diversity to come onto that platform. In fact, in some categories, we lost momentum. It went to minus 1%, and that was in the area of incarceration, right? And so I got to wondering and thinking about that, and I'm going, wow. And then equity came to play, which was, to me and a lot of my colleagues, like the nail in the coffin kind of thing. And the reason why I say this is this. I go to the white man most of the time, and when we talk about reparations, I see this big old green bottle I got in my hand. Mm -hmm. I ask him and I say, listen, if you got some concerns about how I feel and think about you or whatever that might be, I would simply forgive you if you would swallow this for me. Because in it is every atrocity that you have committed upon us. And I will forgive you if you swallow this. Well, the likelihood of him swallowing this big old green jug <laughs> is almost nil, you know? And nil in the sense that he would rather make this disappear before he swallows it. Because it wouldn't be in his best interest to swallow this. This would probably kill him, you know, to some degree. So for him, it's more of a thought of saying, well, if I can't reason with this, then I would just as soon make you disappear because when the white man travels the world and his ability to say he has done the greatest and he's the biggest and he's the best and he's all of this around the world, the one dark spot, and ironic that it's a dark spot, the one spot that he has that they will never let him off the hook is, is that they say you're not as great as you say you are because of the way you, you, you treat your black people in your country. So he would prefer to make that entity disappear. And that was what diversity and equity was all about. It was about allowing enough diversity in that room of discussion to where he didn't have to discuss this anymore. But he could also show his goodness and humanitarianism by helping everyone else, but yet he will not address the core base issue of what civil rights was originally uh, developed for. And that was the advancement of black people in this country and their agendas. And we still, to this day, women and all of that are great. They, I love my women, I love women, you know, I, can't tell you enough about how, I love, how much I love <laughs> you know. But the bottom line still remains is the only one that's still left on that platform with no growth whatsoever in the last 20 years is the black male. And so, you know, you can, you can bring me along as much as you want. So the census is for it, and that part is really, really an important reality that we begin to understand because status quo recognized if you kill the male, you kill the unit. You kill the structure. You kill the foundation of the family. And if you continue to do that, then you really have nothing in return. So that was just my take on what I believe why we count is so important at this point in time. Because if there are enough black males amongst us, but we refuse to get counted. Yes, the black woman is carrying the note on some, uh, some occasions in some units. But I don't believe that the black male is getting the appropriate credit from the family unit reality because someone set in precedence back in the late 80s that the black woman was the backbone of the family. That was another one of those things, you know, because I know enough black men who carry the backbone of their families over the years that have continued to do so. So I'm, I'm all for a recount, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit cautious about some of all these unique dynamics that we're bringing to the table about that, because there's a lot of diversity, a lot of equity and all that, but it don't point to the foundation of the problem. It continues to just make it invisible. So the last book that I'm writing this time around is rooted in this invisible man principle. 
And so, and so that's where we're at. But I'm so glad to see you, you biting at that and, and moving it along and discussing it with our people and making sure that they ain't invisible no more and make sure, let them know, to put this, this dot or whatever it is on their head and let them know that they're going to be counted. And that's really what's important. So I hope I answered your question a little bit fine. I didn't mean to well, take Well, I wasn't. Was <laughs> well, John, I feel like you gave context because the question was kind of for Ray. Hello. But uh, <laughs> I'm actually glad you shared that. Ray, I'd love for you to kind of speak to that. And I think maybe John's concern is, you know, how are, you know, is there a specific engagement around, you know, African-American males who John is considering a really hard to count demographic. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, yes, I, I do. I have so, so many responses to that. I mean, I guess I want to start by saying early on in the interview, um, I mentioned that um, the second time I, I had come to Portland, I felt really invisible. I, I felt like, you know, white people would just see right through me or they would just touch my ear without asking as if, you know, I wasn't like a full, full, full human being. Um, but I think the most concerning and upsetting thing for me was that, um, so I'm from Cape Town, South Africa. I was born into apartheid South Africa, which is essentially legalized white supremacy. Um, and when we, when I came to Portland with my now husband, um, he had told me that we'd be staying in a black neighborhood, a, a historically black neighborhood. Um, and, and so this made me feel a bit better because, you know, we had just left Cape Town and now we were coming here to meet his family. Um, and we got to Kenton and let me tell you, historically black does not mean that they are preserving the space so that black people always have a community. I went for weeks without seeing anyone that looks like me and it really started making me feel crazy. Yeah. I, I, I started feeling like, you know, people were just seeing right through me or I would be the only black person in a, in a coffee shop or in a restaurant. Um, it, yeah, it got really bad, but you know, it just, it, it reminded me of the, of the very um, specifically designed system of apartheid. Yeah. And, and it, this was no accident. And, and you know, the fact that there are, like, are hardly any black people living in Kenton today is also no accident. And I knew that if I ever came back to Portland, I wanted to be involved with anti-displacement work. You know, it's one thing to use the word gentrification, right? Yeah. But we, we should call it what it is. Families are being displaced, sometimes as far as outside of their home state, right? Sometimes families are moving to the state of Washington or sometimes they're moving to the South, right? Um, so that's my piece on in, invisibility. Um, the exciting thing about the We Count Oregon campaign is that it's led by Black and Indigenous people. You know, this is not just about being trusted community messengers. This is about, this is about us doing the work. This is about self-determination, right? Yeah. And it's, it's so critical that, that we do this work because nobody's got us like we've got us, right? That's right. And unfortunately, in 2010, the census undercounted 2.1% of the black population. The bad news is that was, um, that was even worse than um, the undercount in 2000. Mm. Um, oh, no, I might, I might be getting this wrong a little bit, but um, both in 2000 and in 2010, there was a significant undercount of the black population. I agree. What, did, what do you attribute that to? Um, well, you know, what we are finding is that it's, it's fear and mistrust of the government, which are very valid fears. What will the government do with my information, right? Why, why am I putting all of this um, personal information about my actions on the census, right? What, what, why are they collecting this data? Because, you know, we've, we've seen that, that data collected in black communities can sometimes be used to harm those communities. Uh -huh. So these fears are very valid. And like I mentioned earlier, we are, we are holding space for that. We are saying, you're right. You're right. You know, yes, the government has used 
information against black communities. I mean, you know, in the, the city of Portland is so gentrified that there isn't a single black community that exists today. There isn't a single black neighborhood of streets and houses. Community equals strength, community equals resilience. Yeah, but they know that, but the bottom line still remains is, is that if we know that, but they also know how to dismantle that for that same reason. And that's one yeah. of the things that we talked about here in Oregon for so many years is, is that there's no cornerstone. But I think one of the most significant differences between the black here and from born here in Oregon, historically, and the one born in Georgia, is the difference is the only difference mistreatment was consist consistently the same but the only difference was was that the people in Oregon could not own land 68 years after their freedom they still couldn't own land and we're at another places in the, in the United States that land ownership so we find it really ironic that land use in any kind of state that would draw put it into placed into the ground as a frame of reference was always removed for blacks in Oregon and so that's what we're long-term trying to attempt to accomplish here is a community, a sense of community identity, who we are, what we're all about. And so this is part of the reason why POWF was created, really. Um, yeah, we are, we are all about our, we envision a world where all people of African descent are connected and are in community because that's where your strength comes from. That's where your resilience comes from, right? And we've seen that Black people, especially in the state of Oregon, have been so resilient. You know, they are these, I mean, right now, there's soul displacement happening, right? But what we, but Black people, they still get up every day and they do the best that they can to make sure that their community is taken care of. I mean, if there's, if there's something that Black people have always understood, it's how to take care of community, right? No matter how many barriers and hurdles that keep push, um, jump, um, keep springing up, we're gonna keep taking care of our people, right? right? And one of the ways that we can do that right now during the coronavirus is taking the census, because the census makes sure that your communities get the money that they need, right? Um, right now, it's projected that we could have the worst undercount of Black folks that we've had in 30 years, wow. and it is critical that we don't make that statistic true, right? Right. African-American men have been historically undercount undercounted in greater numbers than men of other racial or ethnic groups. This is, this is a pattern that needs to be disrupted, right? And some of the work that we're doing at PELF also is the school to prison pipeline. I mean, black kids right now make up 2% of the school population but they make up 9% of the school discipline. So we're saying that the math doesn't add up and we are saying that we are seeing this pattern and we will work to make sure that it gets disrupted, right? Right. Census also misses more black children than any other children. And if you miss a kid under five now, in 10 years time, that's a teenager. 10 years of missing out on resources for, for Head Start, for school lunches, that's, that's completely unacceptable. Right on. So, you know, for all of these reasons and more, it's so critical that our communities get counted. You know, the census only happens once every 10 years. And for every person that doesn't get counted, we lose about $4,600 per person per year for the next 10 years. That's, that's billion dollars in federal funding. And this is funding that goes to programs that we all use. Every Oregonian uses that, whether you fall under hard to count or not. I'm talking about SNAP, Head Start, Medicaid, the roads that you use, the schools that your kids go to, money for seniors, veterans. Um, all, of, all of these people and all of these programs rely on census money. And it's also um, really important for the state of Oregon because a lot of our budget comes from that federal money that we get based on the census count. Mm. Also, um, you know, in 2010, we missed gaining another congressional seat by such a small margin that if we could make sure that we count everybody, we could gain an additional seat. That's political power, that's representation. Um, so just some of those other programs, again, is 
food stamps, so SNAP, um, the National School Lunch Program, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP, Section 8 housing vouchers, foster care, special education grants, Head Start, low income home energy assistance program. And like I said, we all know someone, if not ourselves, that uses that uses this, right? I mean, we all use roads. We all we all know people that use hospitals. Right. It's about quality of life, and you know, it's high time that black people get the resources that they deserve, and the political representation too. So and that's what, what the census will give us. What kind of uh, feedback are you getting from your team in terms of people's receptions to this? The in the black community. Uh, people's reception to the census? Yes, to your outreach where you've, where if, if you've followed up and inquired like, hey, have you taken the census? And so what's been the feedback that you're getting? Um, the feedback has been well, actually. Um, a lot of Oregonians have already filled out their census, which is very exciting. Um, the Black Possibility Survey that I was talking about is, is one way for us to make sure that, you know, we actually know where Black people live. Because right now on a lot of um, voter systems, Black, a lot of Black people are counted as white. My EB was listed as white. Um, Senator Lou Frederick was listed as white on the system. Um, so really step one is making sure that the data is accurate, which is wow. what we're working on right now. Um, well, how, how is that possible? Well, you know, um, legally, the, 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 the state, the government never um, had to release that information. Um, you know, also somebody changing it or were they, I can't imagine Senator Lou Frederick would fill that answer out wrong. No. So the way that these voter systems work online is they use models. And so they sort of guess um, your race and ethnicity. Now, in a lot of southern states, um, because of their history with slavery and segregation, um, they, they, it's illegal for the government to withhold how many black voters they are. In the state of Oregon, we don't know how many black voters we have. We cannot hold our black elected officials accountable by saying that 90% of black men feel that this issue is important, right? This is just, this is just, this is the state of Oregon. This is where we are. Oh, but we, we're working to change that with the Black Possibility Survey. We're working to get accurate information on Black people and we're working on mapping out where, where do they live and how can we make sure that those people in, this, in, a, in a specific neighborhood can be connected, right? But also we're working to make sure that we can hold elected officials accountable. Black voters across the, the, across the country have always shown that their voices are really strong. And, and it's important to make sure that our leaders know that we're watching them and, and that the, the black vote matters. Well, what's going to be done this time to make sure that people aren't miscategorized? Um, we're working on the Black Possibility Survey now, but I'm not sure about any other projects that, that are happening right now. We just don't have that data. We, we, um, and it's in the interest of a lot of people to not have that data, right? So just because we don't have it doesn't mean that, you know, every um, elected official is going to be interested in changing that reality. Right, right. Because a lot of times the narrative is, well, the black population isn't that big anyway, right? So mm -hmm. they don't really make that many people up. So yeah, yeah it's all that. Yeah, that's, that's the narrative. And I mean, it's the narrative that, that, that gets shaped at such an early age for people that love you. People say things like, there are no black people here. Black people don't live here. Black votes don't matter. Those are the, the it's those little narratives that we have to start changing, right? We gotta we gotta start we gotta stop saying that. We gotta start shifting it in like our everyday speech. Yeah. Yeah. Because for someone to say there are no black people here, like right in front of me, mm, that's <laughs> that's like mm, I'm standing right here, you know. I work at a black-led organization with black people. My 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 census field team. There's a lot of black folks, so mm. right. The invisibility. Uh, yeah, it's it was interesting, John. You missed it, but when she first started, she was talking about being both 
hyper visible and invisible at the same time. Um, and that's it's just a very tugging place to be. Um, so what about, so you, you, you're an immigrant, right? So what about the immigrant community? Because I would think that some people would be like, especially if they're on temporary visas or some are illegal immigrants or something, they're going to say like, why would I give the government uh, that information? They're going to come find me and deport me or, or they're going to start to mess with me as a result of that. How do you address those kind of fears? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Immigrant definitely fall under the hard to count community, right? And as the, the week on Oregon defines that as someone that needs extra in-person engagement. So what we're saying is every immigrant and the work that we're doing is with black immigrants, right? They need someone to tell them why it's so important to take the census. Now we did have a big win with the citizenship question not being on the census, right? right, right. That's the good news. The bad news is the sentiment and the fear was planted. The administration knew that that question was never going to make the census because that's not the process. If you want to change a question on the census, it takes like three to five years. They knew all along that there would never be a citizenship question, but that's not the point, right? Immigrants across the country are afraid that their information will be used against them. Exactly. Your information will not be used against you as an immigrant. Oregon has a thriving black immigrant community. And in fact, you know, I'm an immigrant. A lot of folks on my census field team are immigrants as well. And we really are just working to get the message out to them, right? That the census is so important. It's illegal for an enumerator to share your census information with anyone. In fact, enumerators take uh, a lifelong oath that they won't share that information. And if they, if they break that, they can be fined or imprisoned or both. So they, these laws are really ironclad, right? Title 13 is what protects your census information. And Title 13 says that your information cannot be shared with anyone else and it cannot be used to harm you. So the information that you put on your census will never be shared with your landlord. It cannot be shared with the IRS. It cannot be shared with ICE. It cannot be shared with DHS or the police. That's illegal. So Title 13 is what protects our census information. So if I got 10 people living with me and I have only told my landlord I have four, I should go ahead and say I've got 10 people on the census? You should go ahead and say you've got 10 people living there. That information cannot be used against you. <laughs> that, okay. that, that's the message that we're trying to get out, right? It's yeah, because there's, it's, it's fear, it's shame, it's, it's insecurity, it's um, always being targeted. Yeah, that's a lot to have to overcome. And, mm -hmm. and I guess that's why, you know, We Count exists and how, why this was prioritized mm -hmm. really from the, from the top down. But where, what was the top down in, in this particular case that said that this was an important campaign to pursue? It was, uh, it was a coalition of um, black and brown lead community organizations um, that approached this dynamic organizer, Esperanza Tervalon Garrett, who's our statewide campaign manager. Esperanza did amazing work with the census in California and was really able to make sure hard to count communities get counted. So these local leaders got together and they went to Esperanza and they said, we need you to spearhead this project so that folks can get counted. The cool thing about the Week on Oregon campaign is it's, it's community led. We're outside of the U.S. Census Bureau. We are outside of the government. We are community first, right? People first. So we aren't like we aren't calling people demanding that they take the census. We are calling people and asking them, "Have you taken it? This is how you can take it, and this is why it matters." So we really are meeting people where they are, right? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the black community, you know, like I mentioned, is that fear and mistrust of the government, very valid fears. When it comes to black immigrants, fear and mistrust, you know? Black immigrants get treated very poorly in the state of Oregon. But those are a lot of news stories that we don't hear, right? So what we do is we hold space for all of that. We say, you're right, you know? Information has been used against our communities in the past. But we try to, we answer their questions honestly and 
you know, when we think of these three tough questions, it's people want to know what, what will the government do with my information? They want to know, is it safe to take the census? And finally, they want to know why does the census matter to me, right? But, you know, the government uses the information to allocate federal funding. They, they, they use it to, to give monies to states. And the more people you get, can get counted in your state, the more money your state can get for those services, right? So the number of people counted directly correlates to the amount of funding that people get, right? And again, like I mentioned earlier, they also use that data to show what a state looks like. And this is really a chance for the black community to show that we are here and we've been here and we love you and we love you and we thrive you and we're not leaving. We all, we, everybody that lives in the United States, every living person gets counted. And we will not be intimidated. We will not be intimidated by anyone. We will get counted and we will make our voices heard. It doesn't matter what your citizenship status is. It doesn't matter if you've been previously incarcerated. It doesn't matter if you are three years old. If you're living in the United States, you should get counted. Another question we get is, is it safe to take the census? Is it safe to take this, this form that's asking you for your address and your date of birth? And Yes, it is safe to take the census. The Census Bureau cannot share the answers it receives with anyone. They cannot share it with welfare agencies. They cannot serve it with um, citizen and immigration services, mm. IRS, or the military. Mm. And like I mentioned, census employees take an oath of non-disclosure. And if they break that, they can receive up to five years in prison, a $250,000 fine, or both. These laws are really ironclad. Census responses must remain confidential and cannot be used against respondents in any way. And then going to the question about why does the census matter to me? You know, here at Health, we like to say the census is for everyone. It only counts if we all count. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we talk to people in our communities about the census. Hard to count communities need extra in-person engagement, right? So if I could ask everybody listening right now, just to talk to five people in their professional network or in their personal network that fall in that hard to count category about the census, that's all the engagement they might need to take this census that only comes once every 10 years, right? The census matters to all of us because that those federal dollars impacts all of us. And we, and we all use those services or know someone who does use those services. So it's critical that we use this moment to make sure that we get those, those resources and, those, and that representation. So how does somebody know if they've been counted or not? Because I know like some households, especially here in the um, more urban areas, they have a number of roommates and maybe the roommates aren't necessarily communicating, you know, they cohabitating but one gets a census and goes oh you know i live in the house so are they doing some cross-referencing on on data yes they do and that's the reason that they ask you for your date of birth and your full name so that they make sure that you don't get counted twice but you know it's not it's not illegal so if you if you if you have any fears now that you might have been counted twice don't worry too much about it it's likely that someone from the bureau will follow up to make sure um, that you aren't counted twice. You can also um, call the census helpline, which is toll free, um, and they can they can let you know if you if someone else is taking it on your behalf or not. And What's that, that num number that number is eight four four three three zero twenty twenty. Really easy. So it's 844-330-2020. And it's available in 12 languages. You can call them with questions or issues. You can also call that number to take the census on the phone. Okay, and then there are several ways to take the census too, right? What are those ways? So you can take the census on the phone. You can take the census online at uh, census2020.gov. So just the word census, the year that we're in, .gov. And by now, we should all have gotten our unique census IDs in the mail, which is a 12-digit ID. 
But if you don't have that ID or you can't find it, that's okay. You can still hop online or hop on the phone. And based on your address, you can still take the census. And then the third way to take the census is by mail. So by now, um, most households should have received that option. But if not, the Bureau will be making sure that folks get the census in the mail and they'll be, they'll be using social distance. Uh, they'll be wearing masks and gloves and they won't be knocking on doors. They'll just be dropping it um, in front of people's doors or um, in the mailbox. Um, that way you can keep your distance um, while still taking the census. Nice. Okay. Um, well, I think PELF is doing a wonderful job. And um, how big is your team now, Ray? Oh, <laughs> our team is, is uh, really small, small but mighty. Uh, <laughs> right now, we're a team of five. Oh, okay. All um, right, but you... Five, and then I've just hired um, 13, 14 census field organizers. Right, and, and I noticed that they now extended the, the census too because of the pandemic. Originally, they kind of extended it two weeks, but I think now, did I hear recently, it's longer than that? Yes, yeah, so the original deadline to submit your census was the end of July, but we were able to advocate and get it pushed back to the end of October. This is a win. This is great news for us because it gives us more time to make sure that our communities get counted. Oh, end of October. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, all right. And so are you hoping that you guys can, you know, do you see some opportunity in the future to maybe go canvassing or, or to be more interactive or what is your thoughts there in terms of outreach? Yeah, so initially we were going to have um, a traditional field campaign with door knocking, canvassing, which is such an effective way to organize, right? But because of the pandemic, all work has now moved virtually. We're doing a lot of phone banking and text banking. You know, if conditions allow, we will be canvassing and door knocking. If there is a way to do it that is safe and... Um, socially distant. Um, of course, the safety of our community is, uh, is our first priority, right? right? So we are guided and led by, um, by, you know, what the governor says with the amazing team that she's working with. Ideally, yes, we do get to go door knocking. Um, but if not, we'll just keep on coming up with um, non-traditional ways to get this work done. Well, Ray, thank you so much. This has been this has been a good interview. I appreciate all that you've shared. Now, if people want to get more involved with PELF or get more involved with uh, the work that you're doing with the We Count Oregon campaign, how can they get connected to you all? Yes, thank you so much for asking. It's so easy to stay connected and stay plugged in. Of course, my first request is Take the census, take the census right now, take it today. It takes less than 10 minutes. You can take it online, isn't that amazing? If you have a smartphone, all you have to do is go to census2020.gov to get in, um, involved or to, to learn more about the campaign. You can go to wecountoregon.com and you can find all of the information about the campaign and also the website is in different languages. And then to get involved with the work that PELF is doing, please check out our website as well, PELF.org. That's P-A-A-L-F.org. And you can also find our Black Possibility Survey on the website. So just go to PELF.org, click on Black Possibility Survey, and that's a way to stay plugged into the work that we're doing. And please also follow us on social media. You can find We Count Oregon and self on Facebook and Instagram. Mm. Anything to say, John? No, I mean, I, you know, I bet you, you probably asked her the question and I, and I don't want to be redundant because I came in late. So, but no, I think this is a great interview. And uh, sister, welcome to Oregon. Stay tight. Stay tight. <laughs> you're doing what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I always believe People always ask me, they say, well, why'd you stay in that place called Oregon? 
I said that the front line to our struggles is right here. Yes. Because if they tell me this is the whitest place in America, well, where so where is a better place for me to to put my stake in the ground and and determine you know that there's a place to be influenced here. You know, I don't need to be where everybody else is fighting the fight. I'm I'm fighting right on the front line, right in the front place. So anyway, I'm glad you're here. Uh, much respect to you. Keep doing what you're doing. And if we can be of any service or help to you, you just let us know. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I completely agree. I have so much more work to do here in the state of Oregon. Yeah. I won't, I won't leave until I get the work done. <laughs> and I'd love to end with a quote by Winnie Mandela, which says, you cannot intimidate people like me anymore. Uh, yeah, wow. Wow, that's crazy. You hear that? Cannot intimidate people like me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, this quote is from John Washington. I will not go silently into the night any longer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you can forget about that. You know, uh, I'm done with it. So anyway, sister, again, welcome to PDS Black Rose and the good things that they're doing and stay tuned with it. And, you know, once we're counted, then there's the next step. We got to do something with what we're counted with. And yes. So, Thank you so much. Please take the same Thank you, Uncle John, for being here. Thank you for the interview. I appreciate you all. Yes. And see you soon. Thank you, Ray. Au revoir. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>